We hope you like this Resurrection Oakland Church podcast. Unauthorized use of any part of this copyrighted material for redistribution or duplication is not permitted without prior consent from Resurrection Oakland Church. To learn more about our church and its charity and mission work in and around Oakland, California, please visit our website at www.resoakland.com. A reading from James chapter 5. Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourself in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. This is the word of the Lord. Will you join me in prayer? Father in heaven, thank you for being the God who speaks. Lord, that you don't leave us to imagine who you are to find you, but you are the God who finds us, who seeks us, and who speaks to us. Lord, that you speak to us not only collectively, but individually that your word is living and active. And so we pray that your spirit would work in our hearts so that each of us, wherever we are this morning, would hear you in a compelling way. Lord, that we would hear your voice, the, the voice of the God who created us, who knows us completely, and who loves us completely. For those who are doubting, Lord, we pray that you would grant faith. We, for those who are hurting, we pray that you would grant healing. For those who feel far from you, we pray that you would grant the nearness of your presence. For those who are overwhelmed with grief, we pray that you would bring your comfort. Lord, for those who are overwhelmed with guilt and shame, that you would bring your grace and your forgiveness. Lord, all of us, wherever we are, we pray that you would help us to see what we most need to see, that Jesus is greater than us, than all our problems, and all our worries, and that he is worthy of everything that we are. And so we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. My name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here. And we have been working through the book of James. In this sermon series, we've been looking at how James teaches us the difference between living faith and dead faith. Uh, A Christian is someone who is saved by faith 
alone. You can't earn your salvation. There is nothing that you can do. No amount of good works can make you worthy to be loved and accepted by God. A Christian is saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But faith that saves alone is never alone. And that's something that we've been saying every week as we've been working through this book. James wants us to understand what it is to have living faith and to live with living faith, a faith that changes everything about who you are, a faith that shows up in your life, uh, a faith that just doesn't stay in your head, uh, a set of beliefs that you agree to, but a, a faith that comes alive in your heart and changes your loves, changes your drives, and changes the way that you think about everything. So we've been looking at how faith changes the way that we think about suffering and how we encounter and experience suffering in our lives. We've been looking at how faith changes the way that you deal with the Bible. We've been looking at how faith changes the way that you think about poverty and injustice. We've been looking at how faith helps you and changes the way that you think about your words. And last Sunday, we saw how faith changes the way that we think about humility. We're down to our last two sermons in the book of James. And in these last two sermons, we're going to see how faith changes the way that you think about your health. That's next Sunday. And today, we're going to look at how faith changes the way that you think about your money. So those are the last two sermons in the book of James. How faith changes the way that you think about your health and your money. And can you think about any two topics that are more relevant? Is there anything more important in your life than your health and your money? Well, James says there is. And what is more important than even your faith and your money is your faith, a living faith. So today we're going to look at how living faith changes the way that we think about money. And this is important because money is a complicated topic. If someone came to you looking for sympathy, someone with a lot of money, someone who is insanely wealthy, and they said, I, I need you to understand how hard it is to be rich, how sorry would you feel for them? We, we have a word or a phrase for people who feel sorry about themselves even though they're really rich. We, we, we call this first world problems, right? Weird Al Yankovic wrote a song called First World Problems. Let me read you some of the lyrics. <laughs> my maid is cleaning my bathroom, so I can't take a shower. When I do, the water starts getting cold after an hour. There's no pixel out in the corner of my laptop screen. I don't have bills in my wallet small enough for the vending machine. These are first world problems. How sorry do you feel when someone who seems to have everything complains about their problems? Well, the reason why that song is funny, the reason why it works is because we actually think that money is the solution to our problems, not the cause of our problems, which is why I've never met a pastor who's turned down a large financial donation. Right? This is why nonprofit agencies never turn down a huge grant. This is why even communist China produces a new billionaire every two days. Money 
is not a problem, we see money as the solution to our problems. And James, he challenges the way that we think about money. Money, uh, James says that when you have living faith, a faith that changes your life and changes your heart, a faith that makes a difference, then it changes the way that your money affects the way that you see yourself. It changes the way that your money affects other people. And it changes the way that your money affects your faith. So we're going to look at three things. And we're going to focus on those three topics as we work through this passage. Number one, we're going to look at this point. Do not let money define you. That's what James is going to teach us. Number two, use your money to help other people. And number three, store your treasure in Jesus. So let's start with the first thing that James points out here. Don't let money define you. James starts this passage with a warning to the rich, and it's harsher than he's ever been in this entire book. He says, now listen, rich people. Let's just stop there. Like, imagine if we started this worship. Now listen, rich people. This is a pretty abrasive start. This is a harsh setup. He says, now listen, rich people. It gets worse because he says, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Notice that he doesn't tell rich people what they need to do differently. They don't, he doesn't offer rich people a way for restoration. He doesn't offer forgiveness. He, he, he just pronounces God's judgment. He says, misery is coming to you. And, he, and it's almost as if James is saying, if you are rich, rich people, you should start weeping and wailing right now because trouble is coming. Why is James being so harsh? Well, there's a clue, actually, in the way that he calls people rich people. That's new, too. Throughout the book of James, he's been calling his audience brothers and sisters. He's been calling us uh, fellow believers. But in this passage, James says, you rich people. James is suggesting by that title, that there are people who define themselves by their wealth. People who maybe, if they're a Christian, think of themselves as wealthy first and Christians second. And he wants all of us, rich or poor, to understand how dangerous it is to let money define you. And he flushes this out in verses 2 through 3. He says, your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. James is saying money cannot define you because money will not last. Money is undependable. And the last thing that he says there about gold and silver corroding is really curious because you may know that gold and silver are, they don't rust. They actually, it's very difficult for gold and silver to corrode. In fact, you can make the case that gold can't be corroded if it's pure gold. So what's happening here? Some people say, well, James is uneducated. He doesn't really understand the properties of metal, precious metals. But I think everybody knows what gold and silver are like and why they are so valuable. James is saying is gold and silver, even gold and silver, something that seems like it should last forever, its value should last forever, that even that is unreliable. That however reliable you think your money is, one day, inevitably, 
everyone will lose it all. And this is why all of us always feel like we need to make more money. You, you need to keep on making money if you want to continue having money. You never have enough money. And we all know, especially in uncertain times, that you could lose everything in a series of ter terrible financial decisions, in a financial crisis, in a personal crisis. And this is why it's so tempting to hoard. Do you remember what it was like when everybody was hoarding toilet paper? That was not a good time, right? And the funny thing, it's, it was so strange, right? Because did hoarding toilet paper actually make anyone feel better about their lives? Like you could have a garage filled with toilet paper and did that actually give you peace? It actually probably made you even more anxious. You know, seeing like the unusual volume of toilet paper in your garage was a clear indication that something is wrong with the world. We hoard out of our insecurity. And James says, there's a good reason why we hoard. It's because we are afraid of losing our wealth. In verse 3, he says, you have hoarded wealth in the last days. And then in verse 5, he says, you have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. He's saying that hoarding wealth, hoarding luxury, hoarding life's comforts, that it is useless because it will not stop you from losing everything. Judgment is coming, and that's the language that he's using when he talks about living in the last days and about the day of slaughter. Judgment is coming. And he could be talking about the final judgment, but he's also talking about the little judgments that we all experience in life. He says we're living in the last days, not just the day of judgment, that, but there are many days of judgment, the last days. And many theologians have made the observation that the last days in the Bible and the way that James is using it here refers not to the final judgment, but to every day after Christ's resurrection that we are now living in the last days. No matter how much money you have, no matter how much money you hoard, it won't protect you from heartache. It's not going to protect you from betrayal. It's not going to take away your guilt or your shame or your regrets. Money is not going to protect you from illness. And money is not going to protect you from death. And so whether you have billions or just pennies, your wealth will be useless to you when you die. As the saying goes, there are no U-Hauls behind hearses. Throughout history, people have always looked up to the wealthy. We envy the rich. We want to be like the rich. And if you won the lottery, you would probably be celebrating, not weeping with misery. But living faith changes the way that you think about money and wealth. Living faith has a complicated relationship with wealth. If you are a Christian and you are wealthy, you know that your wealth can't define you. You know that your wealth doesn't make you a better person. You know that you can't rely on your wealth to be there for you in the things that matter the most in life. And if you are a Christian and if you are poor, you know that your poverty doesn't define you. You know that the answer to your problems is not more money, but more faith, more grace, more of God's presence in your life. That you know living faith 
gives you a security that is more secure than money could ever be, and it gives you the ability to be open-handed with your money. Living faith empowers you to be generous. This brings us to our second point that James wants to make in this passage. Use your money to help others. Notice in verses 4 through 6, James calls out rich people for all sorts of really, really serious charges, charges of injustice. In verse 4, he says that these rich people failed to pay their workers their wages. And then in verse 6, he says that they condemned and murdered innocent people. What's going on here? What is James talking about? Well, the first one is not that difficult to understand. In the ancient world, day laborers live paycheck to paycheck, and it is possible that uh, somebody's paycheck could be overlooked. And it's possible that it's malicious, but it's also possible that it was just an oversight. Uh, and that created huge problems for the working poor because day laborers relied on their daily paychecks to buy food and to put a roof over their heads. Missing a day's wages might not be a big deal if you have a lot of money, but to a poor person, it could be the difference between eating and starving. When you hoard your wealth, James is saying, when you hoard your wealth, you could be so out of touch with the way that poor people live. And when you miss a day's wages, you may think that it's not a big deal when in fact it is a huge deal. To put it another way, when you hoard your wealth, your wealth can numb you to other people's suffering and suffering in general. You know how you, when you go to the dentist and you, you, get, you get some local anesthesia and your, your gums are numb and you can't feel anything in your mouth, what, do the dentist tell, what does the dentist tell you after you leave? Don't eat anything for a few hours right? Why? Because when you're numb, you can chew your tongue, you can cause all kinds of damage because you don't feel the pain that you're inflicting. And this is what James is saying wealth does. Wealth can numb you to the pain that other people are experiencing, and you may hurt people without realizing it, and it can make you incapable of empathizing or understanding or sympathizing with the troubles of poor people. You might look at someone who's struggling in poverty and saying, it's just their fault. Why don't they just work harder? It's not a big deal. It's just a day's wages. It can make you out of touch and distance you from the pain of people around you. The second thing that James says here is pretty troubling. He says that rich people condemn and murder the innocent. What's he talking about here? Well, there are people out there, evil people, who use their wealth to murder. We usually call them warlords and crime bosses. Were there a lot of warlords and crime bosses in the churches that James is writing to? Not likely. What he's probably talking about here is the way that wealthy people can manipulate the justice system. And they could win cases in the court of law that give them an unfair advantage over the poor that can result in wrongful prosecution, wrongful condemnation, or in an outcome that leads to even deeper poverty, deeper suffering, and even death. He's talking about how the tips of justice are unbalanced toward the rich. And this is pretty troubling. 
He says, the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. Uh, maybe you're thinking, well, I, I, I haven't missed paying any, anybody their wages. I haven't used my money to tip the scales of justice. This must be a passage for other sorts of people. But notice that the cries of the harvesters have to reach the ears of the Lord Almighty. That means that there are cries, there is suffering, there are victims that we don't obviously see, victims that we don't obviously hear. There are victims in the world that only the Lord Almighty hears, that only the Lord Almighty sees. And so you might imagine James saying that the cries of restaurant servers and flight attendants and school teachers and security guards and retail workers and medical assistants and customer service personnel and even street beggars have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. And if those voices, those cries hear the, reach the ears of the Lord Almighty, do you really think that your name will never be mentioned. Wealth can numb you to the pain that other people experience. Wealth can amplify your own brokenness and make you create damage that is far bigger than you intended. And this is not the way the world is supposed to be. So many of the social problems that we have in the world exist because our financial resources distance us from one another, and they amplify our spiritual problems. But that's not the way that money is supposed to work. John Calvin, who was a theologian in the 1500s, he put it this way, commenting on this passage. He said, God has not appointed gold for rust, nor garments for moths, but on the contrary, he has designed them as aids and helps to human life. Living faith understands that money is not a tool to get what we want, but God has given us money as a tool to help other people. Living faith, in other words, makes us generous. How generous? Well, C.S. Lewis puts it this way in his book, Mere Christianity. He says, I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, amusement, etc., is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we're probably giving away too little. If our giving does not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say it is too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot because our commitment to giving excludes them. He's saying that everyone should give a little bit more than they're comfortable with giving. And that is both beautiful and terrifying. Because I do not want to give away my comforts. I want to help people, but not at my expense. How can you do this? How can anybody do this? How can you give generously in a way that pinches you or hampers you? Well, the only way is to store your treasure in Jesus. So this brings us to our last point. In verse 7, James completely shifts his tone, and he softens his tone. 
He says, be patient, therefore, brothers and sisters. Now he's calling us brothers and sisters. He says, be patient, therefore, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. He gives us this hope that Jesus is coming, and he tells us to be patient. In a lot of ways, patience is the spiritual fruit that is best positioned to fight our impulse to hoard our wealth. Because money gives you the illusion that you are in control. Money convinces you that you have options. Money convinces you that you don't have to wait, that you can make things happen. Money makes you feel like you have resources, that you have control. Patience is the spiritual decision to relinquish control, to resist the temptation to make things happen, to wait on God. And so James uses this example, this metaphor of farmers to illustrate what the spiritual fruit of patience looks like. He says, see how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. He's talking about how important it is for farmers to exercise patience. Farmers can do a lot to make sure that they will have a good harvest, but they can't speed up the rain. They can't make it rain. They can't produce rain. All they can do is wait. And James says that waiting on God is like waiting for rain. He says, you too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. In the original New Testament Greek, that word stand firm means to strengthen your heart. James is saying that it takes heart to wait on the Lord. It takes courage to wait on the Lord. Waiting on the Lord means being okay with what you cannot do, being courage, uh, courageous in the face of some of your deepest fears. Farmers don't know when the rain will come, but they have to live as if the rain will come. Farmers cannot farm for a drought. If you are a farmer and you tell yourself it's never going to rain, you are going to fail really quickly. You need to farm as if the rain is coming. And this is how we are supposed to live. Living faith believes that the Lord will come. The rains of God's mercy and provision will come. And no matter how, matter, no matter how much you pinch yourself or hamper yourself, no matter how much you sacrifice to give generously to the needs of other people, the Lord is coming, the Lord is near, and he will provide for you. And so you can wait. You can be patient. You can be patient when it feels like you're donating money and it's not making a difference. You can be patient when you feel like you're donating your money to help people and they don't appreciate what you're doing. You can be patient when you donate money and you realize there's a need that, that, that you didn't know you had that you, that you no longer can afford. You can be patient and wait on the Lord if you know that he is near. We have something far more reliable, of course, than a weather report that shows us that Jesus is near, that he's coming, and that he is near us in all the ways that we are failing. Jesus is the creator of heaven and earth. Everything in the universe belongs to him. No one is more wealthy than Jesus, and yet he lost everything to save us. He let himself get pinched and hampered and crucified to save us, to meet us in our spiritual 
poverty. And when push came to shove, Jesus didn't rely on his power or his wealth when he endured insults. He didn't rely on his wealth when he endured false accusations. He didn't rely on his wealth when he endured torture. He didn't rely on his wealth when he gave up his life and waited silently in the grave for resurrection. Like a farmer waits for the early and late rains, Jesus waited patiently to save people like you and me. And this is just a down payment. This is God's collateral for greater riches and greater blessings to come. We know that the Lord is near. We know that Jesus is coming. We know that God, who did not spare his son, but delivered him up for us all, will together with him give us everything that we need. Because if God loves us so much that he would give us Jesus, what could he possibly ever withhold from us? Maybe there's nothing more shameful in our culture than financial failure. Uh, people who won't blush over their moral failures will hide their financial failures from people. It's one of the most shameful things that any of us could experience. But Jesus has grace enough to cover our shame. Through his death and through his resurrection, he gives us solid joys and lasting treasure that none but God's children, no. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 7, that God shows us immeasurable riches of his grace in Christ Jesus. God's grace. If you want to know what your life is worth, don't look at how much you have, look at how much you are loved. And in Jesus, God shows you that you are loved beyond your wildest imagination. And maybe that's why Augustine once wrote that nothing could really be lost on earth save what one would be ashamed to bring into heaven. There are no U-Hauls behind hearses, but imagine if there were, what would you take to heaven? What would you put in that U-Haul that you would not be ashamed of? Showing up into heaven with all your wealth, all your money, all your stuff? I imagine it would be something like showing up to your wedding in a tuxedo t-shirt. It's a poor substitute for the immeasurable riches that God has for you in Jesus. Do you believe this? If you do, you will find your true value and your true worth, not in how much you have, but on how much you are loved, loved by God. And it will change you, make you open-handed, make you generous, make you understand the pain and suffering of others, and give you ears to hear the cries of those who experience injustice and to respond with generosity. That's what this table represents. This table is the promise of Christ's return. Not only what Christ has done, it shows us the immeasurable riches of God's grace that was poured out for, uh, for us when Jesus was crucified and risen for us. But it also points forward to the immeasurable riches that are waiting for us when Jesus comes back for us. And so on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and after giving thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body which is broken for you. 
eat of it in remembrance of me. And then in the same manner, he took the cup, and after blessing it, he said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it in remembrance of me, and as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, we are weak, but your grace is strong. And there is nothing that we could bring to you that adds to what you have already given us in Jesus. To possess Jesus is to possess everything. And so, Lord, we thank you for the great sacrifice in, of, of Christ's body broken for us and his blood shed for us. And we thank you for the immeasurable riches that are waiting for us as we wait on you. We pray that you would build up our faith, that you would strengthen, strengthen our faith, and that as, as clearly as we can taste this bread and drink this wine, that you assure us that we are one with the risen Christ and that he is coming soon and very soon to make all things new. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.